Welcome to Lean Back, I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about democracy, which is a little fraught because it's going poorly in my estimation right now. We're recording this in October before the midterm elections. And although there does seem to be a shitload of voter turnout, especially in Georgia, it is unclear to us about whether that will translate in other places that are less organized around the issue of voting rights and or abortion. So um, it just seems to me, Laura, maybe we should start by talking about democratic participation and what you think that that means or what we think that that means right now in this particular historical moment in the United States. I've read in the last couple of weeks, the Siena College New York Times poll. And in that poll, over 70% of participants responded that they thought that there was an existential threat to democracy. But in that poll, almost none of the respondents said that threats to democracy were the primary motivating force for what they would be voting for in November. And so what's weird to me is like this notion that democracy is, you know, foundational to, you know, our, the American project, (laughs) but it's not considered as important of an issue as say inflation or abortion to a lot of voters. So I feel like as a voter turnout issue, it's weird to have something that's so foundational and so important and actually like so critical to our <laughs> liberty and to our like well-being, our future well-being, that that's not a, like what's drawing turnout. Well, there's nobody framing it in the Democratic Party that way. I mean, what Biden calls it semi-fascism, which I guess is like semi-erect. <laughs> I'm like, you know, who is messaging it to them? Nobody's like, there's a five alarm fire on democracy and these fuckers are going to burn it down if you don't do X. That is not the framework that the Democratic Party uses for anything. Nothing is, you know, urgent for them. And then, you know, they buy into all of the red herrings about inflation in the economy and then recirculate that shit as the litmus test against which they are being judged because they're mostly white political elites. So we do, I think, have a participation gap. I think that that is changing. I just don't know if it's too late. And I do think that Americans don't have a narrative about the relationship between anti-democratic impulses and policies in the United States and our homegrown Nazi shit and its relationship to global fascism or what's happening in Italy or Liz Truss just resigned this week or what's happening in Sweden or what's even happening in Ukraine and Russia either, or just as a general understanding about how COVID shifted a ton of financial resources from the poor to the wealthy through tax breaks or PPP or seizing oligarchs yachts or whatever, like a shitload of money was redistributed to the top. And that is the global project of the elites, regardless of whether they're, you know, um, Democrats or Republicans, United States. And to say that, it's hard to say that in this climate of conspiracy, because there are some conspiracies that are real. 
It's just not a conspiracy theory outlook. And I also think Americans are not good at thinking through the fact that the institutions could be flawed, but worth keeping and working through. Not all conflict is abuse, in the words of Sarah Shulman. Like, we can have conflict about how institutions should be conducted and also want to keep them. Like, certainly we should have an ethics, a code of ethics for the Supreme Court. That's a thing we should have. Surely we should ban insider trading among members of Congress and their spouses. Like these just seem like no brainers, but it doesn't mean that we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, except maybe the ele- electoral college should probably go. <laughs> no. I mean, there's, there is a project. It's not a conspiracy and they're really masterful at producing toxic ex- identifications. Exactly. Yeah. And also scapegoating. Right. Oh, yeah. So it's both where they're able to push an economic policy that's really extractive and it's racist. Uh, yeah. Yes. That's the whole point. Like you have to say that stuff out loud and the Democrats don't. That's part of why we're at this point. Uh, and it's because they're doing the racist stuff, too. Like they're maintaining the status quo. They're getting the donations from the same elites, people who are sending money to Democratic and Republican candidates, both knowing that both parties will protect their interests. Yeah, we were talking about the Waltons here, but also the Cub brothers and also, right, it's it's dark money, regardless of the political intent of the group. So the Koch brothers might not necessarily send money to Democrats, but they are deeply engaged in the process of making sure that the financial elites are protected, you know, as long as they're standing the same Republican members of state legislatures in the South. And I think you're right. It's dark money. It is a lack of campaign finance reform. It is um, Citizens United and the production of, you know, money as speech. It's super PACs. I mean, it is structural inequality at such a gigantic fucking level. It becomes difficult then to talk about why voting matters because there's so much money in elections, right? And yet, while we still have the ability to have free elections and that is slipping away by the day, it still is a thing we have to talk about is what is the relationship between democratic participation and investing in democratic participation and the larger American project, which has always been about colonialism and empire building. It's a it's a hard needle to thread, right? Because the American project has been so bankrupt as, you know, a plantation economy and as a racist practice of white supremacy. But we're at a moment where it has to be redefined and the stakes have got to be made clear and we just don't have spokespeople who are willing to do that. Sidebar, I do love you, John Fetterman, and I want to see you succeed and stomp these motherfuckers out and fly your free flag and do populism on the left in a way that's ethical and playful and community building. And I just don't think that we have a lot of those folks who are willing to build that kind of rapport with their communities full of risk and play, which is obviously uh, something we talk about a lot here on the podcast. There's not a lot of candidates that do that because it's hard to untie the money from it. Right. And so don't get me wrong. Like I'm not saying voting for Democrats and voting for Republicans is the same thing. Like there is a worse evil. It's hard for me to swallow how extreme the Republican Party has gotten just in the last decade. 
like the overt authoritarianism is, is shocking to me. And the way that they're able to smoke screen it behind populist issues, you know, you see a lot of even moderate voters reconciling like, well, this person has some extreme views on voter participation, voter rights, on even economics, uh, but they'll push through a ban on abortion. So I'll vote for them anyway. I see that negotiation with in the Georgia election with like Herschel Walker on the ballot and just being an unpalatable candidate for a lot of moderate voters, a lot of sensible people, um, but they're willing to vote for him anyway because he'll do the bidding of the party. Yeah, it's just teaming. It's like, I want my team to win at, at all costs. It's just really banal in terms of like people's ability to parse what elections mean and what their commitments are to politics. But it does speak to how shallow the political discourse uh, among the liberals is. The thing that I always get really tired of in these electoral cycles is the left shaming from the liberals, right? Like any critique is going to depress turnout. And it's like fucking message better. It is both true that the Democratic Party's messages suck and are mostly failure. They fail to embrace abortion, even though the polling is clear that it's the winner. It's a winner every single time and they won't do it. And it's like, if you say that out loud, then the liberals get really pissy. Like the critique is what is depressing turnout instead of the decisions by the Democratic Party to message poorly. And so it creates this toxicity that undermines coalition building between lefties and liberals. And that's not to say that there aren't some like lefty discourses that are perhaps not the best, but it it remains to be a red herring as well, that it's the critique that's happening within the coalition that's what's undermining the coalition. And that is the kind of thing that only benefits the white financial elite. So it's like, a, it's a stupid thing in the discourse that really undermines organizing, I think. Part of the infighting, the lack of coalition on the left, it's part of it is how effective the messaging on the right has been. So there's the outcry about wokeism and cancel culture, but like those things aren't operational at all. Yes. In politics, there is no left Yes, in the political system. Correct. They are not making any policies that are progressive. They're not, they're not making They're not passing. policies, full stop. E- exactly. Yeah. So those things, they have no teeth at all. So it's a complete smokescreen. But then it's generating all of this conflict in the Democratic Party about like what is you know, a palatable position. Yeah, instead of just saying that we stand democracy, we will massively expand democracy in these ways. Every candidate in the Democratic Party supports, right, a reinvigorated Voting Rights Act. And here is what we're going to do to spend. This is this is a package that we want as soon as we recapture the House and Senate. And even if they have that, that package of bills ready to go, it is not being messaged as such because they don't actually want to pass it. I do not have it any faith whatsoever that the Democratic Party as a party would really prefer 
easier voting. Nancy Pelosi hasn't stood for an actual debate against a challenger in her entire fucking career. So we have this political moment where the GOP candidates aren't showing up for any debates or any candidate forums. They're refusing to speak to reporters and they're absolutely undermining any kind of political accountability or public governance. And the Democrats don't want to say anything about it because they want the benefit of that as well. And it's garbage. And it is the thing that I think animates the left against the liberals in a way that is extremely sensible and understandable. It's very legible to me about the outrage. I mean, our government has always represented special interests more than it has the voters. So, I mean, that is, it's always been a little bit of a charade. I mean, you obviously need the public to vote you in. Uh, money can move that around <laughs> in I mean, a that's lot of how ways. It's been historically, but uh, that it's poised to not go that way where the public is no, no longer a necessary charade or any kind of check on abuse. And honestly, there are people on both sides of the equation that would prefer that to not have to stand for election. And, and if functionally, materially, I mean, there are some people, Chuck Grassley, Diane Feinstein, They've been in Congress so long, it's not like they're dealing with major challengers. They themselves have become institution at holding those seats. The real question on the table is what stomach people have for the massive clash that is necessary to reimagine what a fully democratic public would look like in the United States. And it will not be pleasant. It's going to be extremely painful and brutal. The Democrats don't have a stomach for it. So... You know, the question is, I think people have at least a sense of dread, right, that we are in this political purgatory where it's unclear how long we'll be there and how bad it will be on the other side. Because I don't think people have delusions that it's like somehow there's going to be a bunch of rainbows and puppy shit on the other side. No, nobody has that sentiment among the liberals. Certainly the left doesn't, as little and tiny as it is. So it's just everyone is sitting and stewing in a bunch of political feelings that are really based in dread and what kind of horror show is coming next, where the risk is distributed much more widely through the culture. I mean, the historical precedents for this are horrific. Horrific. Like heading in that authoritarian direction. Russia now, they have so much power economically still because... Our government is tied in with the blood money, right? From their oligarchs. Like it cannot be disentangled. And the people who are funding campaigns for our senators, they don't want it to change either. I mean, really, Europe is such a weird thing to think about as an entity at this moment, post-Brexit, because Europe is very likely to fail. I don't think that regular Americans have any sensibility about what a failure of the EU would look like as a cataclysmic event for the globe, but certainly the West. And it's self-inflicted, right? So it's not like I'm being naive about that. It will be a motherfucking terrain wreck. And it is extremely likely to happen. If Ukraine fails to deliver grain, a bunch of the world is going to starve. If Russia detonates a low-yield nuke in Ukraine, a bunch of people are going to die. I can't tell 
who's paying attention enough to understand how close we are to global disaster. That's even aside from climate change, which is honestly the thing that all of the elites are hedging against, which is why there is this rapid transfer of wealth from bottom to top right now. It's a way of trying to consolidate power before, you know, the resource wars spread in a way that creates chaos. And I just don't see a sustained conversation in the American public sphere that ties that to democratic policymaking in a way that is legible for the average American who's attentive in any way online or on the TV or in the newspapers or wherever the hell they get their information. There is no coherent narrative about it because to create a coherent narrative would be to say that the emperor has no clothes. And it's a fundamental indictment of the two-party system and... You know, it's a much larger critique about the values of individualism and wealth hoarding in the West and certainly in the United States and the way that that's been the driving impulse of colonialism since, you know, it began. I think the fact that it is happening in Europe with other political systems beyond two party means that it's a larger global issue about power and economics. And so it is disappointing to see examples of this in Europe as well. But it seems like we're heading like full steam (laughs) in the same direction. And it seems like that's what the Republican Party wants. I mean, they invited Viktor Orban to CPAC this year in Dallas. For their vision board. He's building their vision board for the GOP. He was star speaker. He is an authoritarian, illegitimate monster authoritarian leader and so to have him speak as a model that should have been like alarm (laughs) that to me is like if you didn't believe that authoritarianism is the goal (laughs) i don't think there's any argument what did what is oprah said was it oprah would always quote maya Angelou that said when people show you who they are the first time believe them um the fascists are fascists they'll always be fascists i'm thinking of the Republican platform of the Texas GOP. And one of their big central pieces is ending divorce rights and ending no-fault divorce to force people to keep properties together so that men continue to control household property. And about how that is such a fundamental organizing block of white supremacy and colonialism in the West, but especially in the United States. Nobody is sounding the alarm on this as a as a cultural culture wide nationwide conversation. It's not happening. Why can't the left do outrage in the same way? Like because the liberals tone police them with a bunch of civility shit. That is a bunch of manufactured white lady nonsense because they have shitty liberal lib, liberal politics about labor. That's why they don't want to hear the rage. They can't sustain it. They think it's gauche. It's not waspy enough. It skews towards liberation ideologies, right? Black power, Chicano power, labor power, student power, youth power. So they don't want to hear it because it fundamentally undermines the affective register through which they build their shitty neoliberal politics. They want Obama. They do not want Bernie. And it's not even about the ideas that they represent necessarily. They don't like Jewish voice, right? They do not like labor voice. They don't want those politics. And so this is why we cannot have nice things. 
is because the liberals tone police the left all the time. And they're like, be more reasonable, be more gracious. Don't be so critical. And it's like, you're fucking it up. You're doing the fash. You're facilitating the fash. Your civility is fascism. But the right did not tone police Trump. And no, they embraced it because it moved the Overton window to the right. Why not follow that strategy, but in the ethical direction? <laughs> you know what I mean? Read what's happening on the left. Understand like the movement towards populism in the right direction <laughs> uh, would be the move. I think that that's the, the lesson of the abortion debate in the repro movement is that people are fucking outraged about the destruction of abortion rights. They're outraged by it. Harness it. Yeah. Call it what it is. They call the left socialism, even though there's no <laughs> practical operational socialism, yeah. essentially anywhere. Yeah. Like, I feel like using that messaging in the other direction, call it authoritarian, authoritarianism, call it anti-democratic. Yeah, I agree with that. But the thing is, is that white power works through euphemism and by not being candid. So liberals don't like candor. They think it's gauche. They think it's um, too critical. They think that it's um, bitchy. They think that it's... They're pleasers. Yeah, they're all pleasers. Or avoidance. Or both. Or afraid. Whatever. There's that's not reasonable. That's a projection. That's what they want. That they want to believe that it's it's not. I mean, I'm working with these people all the time, right? That are f- totally comfortable and mostly white, and they're afraid of losing their jobs. And they're the most educated people in the United States. That is on prima facie ridiculous. Their inability to read the actual risks of the moment and their refusal to do so, which maybe be more that might be more problematic, is what undermines fucking democracy. It is a fundamental problem. And if you call them on it, they get defensive and swipe tears and they won't talk about it. They won't do racial solidarity. They retreat into, you know, more of gender politics and they reproduce structures of financial inequality because they can't, they cannot do the work. They want that kind of distance from poor people and people of color where they don't have to take responsibility for all their heinous political decisions. So they will not embrace rage. Instead, they produce smugness, which is as revolting. It's one thing to be right. It's another thing to be smug about your lazy, shitty politics. Those are not the same sorts of things. If you have risk tolerance, I think it's an ethical responsibility to take risks. I'm saying it's your responsibility. If you have any kind of risk tolerance, not as a, not as a personal trait, as a material condition. Continue. Yeah. No. Just for the kids listening. <laughs> so I, I I drive by this this uh, billboard a few times a week, and it's paid for by the Republican Party of Arkansas, and it says, "Was your life better than it was two years ago?" That's it. Vote Republican. And so that the message of that billboard to me like gets to the heart of the issue right because it's asking is your life personally 
better than it was two years ago. And they're trying to make a comment about inflation, I'm guessing. Like, are you paying more for gas than you were two years ago? Vote Republican. That, to me, gets to the heart of the entire issue, which is that the reason we've gone this extreme is because of a lack of voting in solidarity. It's voting for what you personally is better for you. What the boomers <laughs> think is better for them alone not for the planet, not for the future generations, what they, them, what's better for them. Yep. Tax cuts would make them alone <laughs> better off. Um, so, I mean, that's the situation that we're in is that we have a huge swath of the electorate that votes thinking of themselves alone. That's encouraged by that, right? That's part of the the whole exercise and it's cruel. I mean, the, they don't care what kind of cruelty is enacted on other bodies. Well, they do because they actually like it. They're actually sadists. So they like cruelty. It's a turn on, but you have moderates who I would hope, uh, don't like cruelty, but are willing to vote for candidates that promote, uh, forced birth, I mean, listen, um, it's a distinction anti-immigrant to me, but I do appreciate that you're trying to carve out a space for a moderate who does not participate in the theater. But they vote for it anyway right. because so they want their tax cuts. They, yeah, they want the benefits of the cruelty, even if they're not viscerally turned on by it. They love to be turned on by their fast cars and their boats and bullshit. So i i don't I don't see any reason to split that hair. I wouldn't throw those babies out with that bathwater. I do think you're right, though, that the, the toxic individualism is what is eroding democratic practice. I would prefer that people see themselves just regular people, right? The people you see in the grocery store, see yourself as a democracy engineer. What are you doing to strengthen democracy? Are you a poll worker? Do you use your public library? Are you out supporting public schools? Like, what have you done for democracy today? is a reasonable question. You know, this is the place where I sort of get down with John Kennedy, which I don't very often, but the idea that people should participate in their civic culture and be rewarded for it socially is actually really important for civic participation. It was important in 1960, you know, at the height of pushback against desegregation. It's important now and we need democracy engineers. They're as important to the infrastructure of the country as anybody else who's building roads and bridges. And it would help cut against this toxic individualism that you're so right to call out. You know, is that people should see what am I doing to support wages? What am I doing to support, you know, a federal job guarantee? What am I doing to support local businesses? What am I doing to to, to undermine propaganda models? I mean, there's lots of places for people to plug in based on their unique skills and stuff. But the other side of this is that that toxic individualism is fundamentally anti-education. So we're seeing this huge attack on public schools at every level and at school children as a way to undermine people's like their loyalty to their community educational practices, which are fundamentally about ending the notion that public goods are public. <laughs> Sad laugh. Sad funny. It's still like a, a thing where we frame it like, what can I do? And not how do we fix this? Like, how do we frame our problems as our country's problems? Well, I don't think that the Democratic Party has a will 
And so I'm just saying that there is a way, and that is to manufacture the messaging that we need to hear, right? So I don't know if you read Eli Mistal, who is the, the one of the legal correspondents on MSNBC, but um, his new book, Allow Me to Retort, is great. And there's a whole chapter that's like, here's how the federal government can actually legalize abortion on all federal property, right? And he is producing solutions that can then get leaked up as possibilities because the people who are elites in power are not generating new solutions to old problems. So they have to come from somewhere. There has to be a method of persuasion where the people have a sensibility about what they already want. So then if it emerges in the national discourse, they can say, oh, I've always wanted that. There has to be a way to build that kind of internal messaging among the population for what they want. They have to be primed for it in order to accept it. And little Joey Biden's not going to do that. So that has it's not going to come from the White House. It's not going to come from the Senate. And I do think that we'll win seats and the Democratic Party will retake the Senate. But it's not going to come from there as a radical shifting in priorities. It has to come from the people. It has to come from a way that we fundamentally identify as citizens. And because that's what the right is doing. They're saying to be a good citizen, you have to go and kill migrants. To be a good citizen, you need a bunch of walls. To be a good citizen, you should live in a gated community. To be a good citizen, you should do racism. To be a good citizen, you should pick on queer kids. That's what they're saying. That is what they are defining as the way you go about operationalizing citizenship in your day-to-day community. The left doesn't have that except for labor unions. And the liberals have nothing other than consumption. As you so eloquently have pointed out, they want their Netflix and their wine. So the limousine liberals do not want to reconceptualize citizenship because they're benefiting from all of the precarity, scarcity language that the GOP is producing. It's not going to happen through politics, you're right. Framing the protection of democracy around winning the midterms, to me, falls pretty flat. It's necessary, but not sufficient. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we can't directly vote for open fascists. Um, We can't elect them into office, but... No Nazis. It's not enough, right? And the problem is the lack of resources. I mean, so many resources in education and community spaces and even places to live affordably. Yeah, yeah, no. Anyway. (laughs) But I will say the other side is that the people with resources who share our persuasion among the, say, liberal elite won't do the work because they don't want to, they don't want to add any risk whatsoever to their economic position in the hierarchy of the thing. So while it is absolutely true that structurally the material wealth has been stratified, particularly since COVID, as a wealth transfer from the bottom to the top to the most wealthy. It is also true that there are lots of resources available that are absolutely untapped because the Democrats are preppers too. And they're like, how can I personally insulate myself from climate change? What can I do to personally insulate myself from the effects of abortion laws that erode my ability to access health care? They are like, what can I do to personally make sure that my house is going to appreciate in this market? And how can I artificially depress the housing market to sustain that? They are financially and materially committed 
to gentrification and colonization in ways that are banal but significant, and they have considerable wealth. So, yes, it's true that the state has an ethical responsibility to produce conditions of habitability and safety that are fundamentally democratic, and it's also true that the people who should be safeguarding that and who ideologically would consider themselves as defenders of democracy won't do the work because they do not want to accept any risk. And they're becoming landlords. They are. They've always been landlords. They're, they are <laughs> landlords. It is absolutely true that the move to to own property is what keeps the liberals from a more left agenda, which is why the leftists are all about, you know, property and labor. I mean, it's really the same the same conversation that we had about Bernie and everybody's Bernie sads because he wouldn't stop beating the labor drum. And it's like the reason that he's doing that is because he understands, as the left has, that the, the conversation about property is always already about race. It's part of, I think, why the the right is coming after, you know, cancel culture and wokeness because they want to keep that language in check. They want to keep outrage in check. They want to maintain civility, you know? And so they're trying to police like even any kind of risk taking. If, if it's like even the bare minimum of coming out on the internet and saying like, hey, this behavior is unacceptable. I mean, the right likes outrage because it motivates people to do shit. And Democrats are not, you know, generally motivated. Like they're motivated by feelings of scarcity and racism that are low-key and hidden. That's why they depress their own turnout when they choose shitty messaging that does not energize people around rage or really fear. On a, on a material side, it is because their interest convergence actually is with the GOP on a lot of issues. And it's because they don't have the stomach for the fight. I mean, they're, they're not fighters on the whole. They don't have the temperament, the political temperament, to navigate the massive amount of conflict that is going to be engendered if they do fight back. They know that it will be trench warfare and they don't have the stomach for it. And so they cede the ground and go center right at every turn unless they have an overwhelming majority space to operate from, which is really hard in a 50-50 country. So... I mean, the Democratic Party is making itself obsolete by its inability to stake out the left side and drag the Overton window back across the center. They're self-inflicted. They refuse to do it because they benefit from not doing it. The last thing I worry about in this conversation is the the lack of trust in elections and the conspiracies surrounding um the validity of election outcomes. And so a concern that I have is, you know, like a civilian militia. We saw it in January 6th. And so like, I worry about that not being an isolated incident. And there's this entire, like one election wasn't valid to this certain group of people. What stops them from thinking that that about every election outcome that they don't agree with. Correct. That's the point. And they have the guns and they're willing to mobilize. And also police unions support the right. (laughs) Police themselves support the right. And are the right. Are the right. Yeah. 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 No, uh, they're definitely building a, an alt army. (laughs) 
here. I think the purges at CNN of the liberal newscasters is a real canary in the coal mine for what's happening in the media sphere to help facilitate what will be a transfer of power to authoritarian fascists that will end the right to vote completely. So, you know, on the one hand, yeah, the Democratic Party's messaging is terrible. And on the other hand, the stakes are so high that there won't be an opportunity to vote again. I mean, it seems like extreme to say, but it's, it happened in Hungary, happened in Russia. (laughs) It's been that way in Russia for decades since Putin took power. And that's the model. And it's very clear if you, if you're at any point attentive to the relationship between the contemporary GOP and Russia, that Putin has been financing and buying, you know, secrets from the United States for a long time. And it's part of a larger circuit of global mafia capitalism with the intent to subordinate, you know, huge economies to the whim of a few oligarchs. That's the way that things have been. That's We called them robber barons before, but there's no different, right? So we're in that moment again where the elite control gigantic swaths of the global economy and they will do it to the detriment of everybody else who will have to struggle in the resource wars against famine and plague and starvation and no water. And the indifference is stunning, but also the turnout and engagement is somewhat heartening. I just don't know that it'll be enough. 